1: Hello everybody and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruin My Life. Today's subject is Football Grounds and joining us today is the Nicholas Pevsner of Football Grounds, Simon Inglis. I sympathise with Simon particularly because I suspect he's destined to be known for his breakthrough book Football Grounds of Great Britain as I am for Manchester United Ruin My Life. Despite the fact that we spent the past 20 years writing a dozen different books but perhaps even more important is the fact that with Simon on board, and in the interests of balance, but probably not impartiality, we have as many Jews as Gentiles on this podcast. <laughs> A first for us, and possibly never to be repeated, unless we can get hold of Mark Lazarus of Queens Park Rangers. Anyway, enough from me. Welcome, Simon English.
0: (laughs) That's the first time I've been introduced as the token Jew.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But here we are talking about football grounds and welcome, obviously, to Paddy and to John, the usual gang. And we all have our own memories of the grounds we grew up in. What we now have, certainly in my case and in John's case, is a same club and a completely different ground. Denz Park, Paddy, what's, yes. what's the situation with that compared to what it was in
3: 1958? Obviously, <laughs> barely changed. It's a slum <laughs> falling down. All that's happened <laughs> is that it's been sort of sliced like an egg, so that it no longer soars into the skies as it did when I first went there in the mid 1950s. It was very beautiful to me, but now it's a ground only a fan could love. It still gives me a thrill. The old stand was built by Archibald Leach's company the same company that built many, many grounds, as Simon would tell you, including that of Fulham, my London club. And it's still so beautiful. I I can stand there and look at the ironwork of the struts of the roof. And I'm telling you, it's beautiful. It's my Sistine Chapel. You know, you're laughing. I can hear you laughing. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean you're not all laughing at me. But (laughs) it truly is beautiful. And the thought that this will be torn down as the club's current ownership suggest to make way for a uh, some Lego MFI wardrobe on the outskirts of town fills me with sadness.
1: Simon, how did it begin? Why did it begin? When did you start your compilation of the football grounds at Great Britain?
0: Well, I suppose I'd have to start with I went to my first Villa match when I was six in 1962 Well, no, I went to Villa Park first with my mother, who wanted to take me to Aston Park and Aston Hall, a Jacobean mansion in Mm. in Birmingham, um, which overlooks Villa Park. But unfortunately for my mother, I was far more interested in the football ground at the bottom of the hill than I was of the ancient building at the top. And I was lucky enough that my father was a dentist and one of his patients had season tickets to Villa. I, of course, knew Villa because even though I was only two at the time, the fact that Villa had won the FA Cup in 1957 resonated throughout Birmingham. And even though I lived closer to St Andrews, can I say that on on air? St Andrews. (laughs) Obviously, the cup winning run. And I also think, I mean, it goes as basic as this, the colours and the buildings I just lost my heart to that straight away. You know, the old Jesuit saying, show me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man. Yeah. Something happened to me on that afternoon. If it had been a nil-nil draw, I might not be here today. But Aston Villa beat, I'm sorry to say this, John, but they beat your guys Leicester City with Gordon Banks in goal, 8-3.
3: 8-3.
2: <laughs> so if that's your first I don't experience, believe it. <laughs> well, you can check it out. With Gordon Banks in goal, are you sure? What year was that?
0: 1962,
2: April the 19th, I think it was. It might have been. Yeah, Yeah, they had a dip year between reaching the cup final in 61 Mm. and then nearly achieving the double, the year that did ruin my life for a number of years until three years ago when they won the cup until this year, which has effectively ruined my son's life, who's in a complete state of meltdown over our relegation. But never mind. Yeah, they had a bad year that year. That was probably pre-signing Gibson and Stringfellow, which revitalised the site. At yeah. the time,
0: Villa were in a sort of a transitional period. It was the days of the Mercer Miners, as they were called. Oh, I yes. remember. Yes. Uh, yes. Joe Mercer. And within four years or five years or so, we were in the third division, I think. So it was at a time where the club itself was, in terms of its administration and where it was going... It was a little bit stuck because the old guard was still hanging on. Yeah. And this was before the big Doug Ellis takeover, what's that, 66, 67, or even 68. And even though there was this grandeur around the ground, my first match was sitting in the Trinity Road stand. I also remember vividly it was when I learnt my first swear words, which was mm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere, the sort of the hugger mugger nature of being, you know, me, a nice little Jewish kid living in Moseley going to a good Church of England school. None of my friends were really football fans. None of my family were football fans. It was just purely this patient of my father's having a couple of spare season tickets. And even now, I can't believe it that my parents, my otherwise responsible, caring, loving parents, (sighs) let me and my brother set off across Birmingham to the other side of Birmingham. My brother was 11. I can't remember any adult intervention. I can't remember there being... Anyone there showing us where to go, we somehow managed it.
3: Yeah, I had a and similar experience at Dundee, Simon. You know, when my grandfather dropped me off at the ground, gave me a shilling, which yes. in those days was the admission. And said, so I'll pick you up after the game. And that was a nightmare.
2: Sorry, can you hear the dogs? Oh, yes, well, we well it's a dog.
3: bit difficult. This not time, do time they
2: objected to the mention of the 8-3 defeat It's (laughs) actually otherwise known as the arrival of the Waitrose delivery. I
1: do want to drag the conversation back to the origins of the book. So can the dogs tell us when they're happy for us to proceed?
3: Yeah. But it's interesting to find out that Simon, when he grew up, was one of those Waitrose types, middle class
0: kids well waitrose didn't exist
3: at at that i know i know hold on one second
0: i think you know this is a salient point we think of football obviously as a working class sport and um it was indeed a working class sport but sitting amongst me around me in the trinity road stand that day there were very many middle class professionals because working Mm. class people couldn't necessarily afford a season ticket it was a cash economy in those days and i Personally, didn't buy a season ticket for another 20, 30 years or so until I was in my mid-30s. Mm-hmm. The cash economy meant that as a small boy, <laughs> you could turn up with your sixpence, or I think it was actually one and three. Yeah. by the time I
3: started going. A wee bit younger than me, Simon.
0: Indeed yeah. I am. I'm a mere 68. But I think mm. I managed to sneak through the schoolboy entrances at least until about the age of 16 or 17, <laughs> as we all did, of course. As we all did. You, you, you reduced yourself in height and put on a high-pitched voice as you went through. Because oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, otherwise, it was, it, I think it was it,
2: Was it 2 it's and 6 or 5 shillings. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Simon, that you fell in love with the colours And we had Alastair Campbell on. And the colours were what drew him to Burnley, apparently. He's the ultimate turncoat, having been brought up in Leicester and gone to the same school as Gary Lineker. He became, because of his, near his birthplace, he became a Burnley fan. But he admitted that it was the colours that he really liked. I think it was also, it
0: sounds pretentious for me to ascribe to a seven-year-old the appreciation of architecture, but I think there was something about growing up in Birmingham in the early 60s when the city was on the cusp of real change, motorways, spaghetti junction, the motor industry was at its height at that point, although about to implode. And I lived in an industrial environment very much. And Villa Park had this grandeur about it, which I think somewhere deep within me, established an idea that Aston Villa were an institution, whereas Birmingham City were perhaps just a a club. Um, Also, I have proof because I then wrote in my school composition book in terrible handwriting a couple of compositions about my visit to Villa Park. I I used the word stadium, double-decker, spelt wrongly, and floodlights, (laughs) spelt wrongly.
2: Also, the other common thing, of course, I'm afraid, is that we all of us brought up in this middle-class, nice background, went to a football match and started swearing. My mother was horrified by that. You spoke ever so nicely before you went to the football with your father. Well, did
3: you have a football ground voice? I'm sure that I lapsed into brummie. I was sort of lower middle class, I suppose. I went to a fee-paying grammar school. But when I went to football, and indeed... All the time when I wasn't at the school, I tried to speak working class, not always convincingly, by the way. Got a few hidings, actually, but when I was discovered. But definitely, football made me aspire to be working class. But to go back to your point about the grandeur of Villa Park, I can completely understand that because although not every ground was as castle like, you know, almost as good as that uh, Jacobean place up the hill, you probably read books about castles and fairy tales. Here was one that happened to coincide with your passion. And although, you know, Filbert Street, maybe in John's experience, Den Park in mine, weren't quite as beautiful to the casual, unbiased onlooker, they were still bloody palaces to us.
1: Yes, I do think that's partly because of where they were built. I don't know if Simon agrees with this, but if you have this extraordinarily large, impressive building in the middle of rows of terraced housing, yes. it obviously stands out in yes. a way that it doesn't in a shopping centre, which is where Manchester City now are. But going to Main Road was like a cathedral coming out of those two up, two down back street terraces. Oh, that forecourt at Main Road. Oh, But you just come across it, don't you? You just turn left and, and it's there in front of you. You don't see it for miles ahead of you the way that you do if you're approaching something on a motorway.
0: There's also that contrast that you had between post-war Britain, where most of our cities in the late 50s and early 60s were still suffering from post-war restrictions. You know, the building boom didn't really start until 61, 62, as government restrictions on building materials were lifted. So a lot of our environment was quite dowdy. It was quite run down. And even Villa Park at that point, they were a little bit dusty. They needed a lick of paint. What really transformed it, and this is something that many people have have said they've identified mostly, is that moment where you step out of that world and you see the green pitch in front of you and the pitch itself. It is magical. It's artificial. But in many ways, for people growing up in that post-war Britain, it was the most colourful thing. And I think that colour is an extremely important part of football. And if you were to ask me, one of the differences between football in my youth and football today, I would say the intensity of colour has mm. increased. Yes. When you watch a, a premiership map, the floodlighting is so much better. The kits have a deeper tonal value than previous kits did because of the materials that, that were used. The paints, the football grounds of our youth, many of them were decked in very dowdy sets of paints. Derby, Everton, places like that that had the leech balconies most of them were covered up with green paint as if they were being camouflaged. So the colour intensity, for me in 1962, it was an appeal to your senses Mm. in a way that you just didn't get when you walked around city centres at that time.
2: Tell me, Simon, Archibald Leach... I mean, was he a multimillionaire? (laughs) Uh, No, he should have been. Well, he did
0: quite well in the sense that he moved from Glasgow and went to Liverpool and then to London. Lived not far from Fulham, actually, for a short period in the house that had formerly belonged to the Wedgwood family. But then, as he gets older, he ends up in a semi detached house in Cockfosters. He made most of his money, I think, not from football at all, but from factories. His headed notepaper never said anything about football ground designer, it was always factory consulting engineer, factory designer.
2: It's an early example of the class prejudice. Mm. Against football? No, I don't think so. No, no, no,
0: no, no, not at all. No, I think it was merely that factories were his main source of income. You couldn't really make a living out of football clubs because so many of the football clubs didn't pay on time and they took years and years to pay off. The minutes and the notes that I went through when I was researching Archie's career are full of unpaid invoices. Mm. full of them. Hearts, for example, they had a long-running battle with Archie over their bills. And the clubs didn't always manage their affairs. I mean, we're so used to football being a business today, but we forget the fact that the butchers, the bakers, the candlestick makers, John, you know this more than any of us, just in the last 20, 30 years, has been transformative to the game, having Mm. professionals involved. When I was researching this in the early sort of 80s, The idea that a club should appoint an architect even was regarded as sort of slightly risque and contentious because club chairmen saw architects as somehow going to ruin them with their ridiculous schemes. They didn't see it in terms of, well, actually, an architect could save us money. So there was a lot of genuine amateurism at board level, which meant that the commissioning of expensive buildings was, I wouldn't say beyond them, but it made... Ground development, a very difficult thing. They were living for the day. Apart from in the very early days when Old Trafford was laid out as a stadium, although it was only built in incremental style, it wasn't until really the 60s and Old Trafford again in the mid-60s where they actually had a master plan. Mm. Otherwise, it was you build there when you can afford it, you build in that corner when you can afford it. The builder who you might have gone to last time might have gone bust, or you've got a new stadium manager who is a builder, who's got a mate who can do it for you. So you get four different stands built by four different builders, no structural or aesthetic sort of identity or conformity at all, which is why we
3: love them so much. Your Archie was the leader, was the resistance movement to this, surely. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Stevenage Road stand at Fulham, which so beautifully counterpoints the new Riverside stand. I mean, it's lovely. And, and of course, grade two listed. So with a bit of luck, it'll be lovely and delight people pass by for for years and years to come.
0: But, you know, you mustn't get too caught up with this because... We've all, <laughs> too late, we, mate. We today think of Craven Cottage and the Stevenage Rose stand or the Johnny yeah. Haynes stand, as we The Johnny Haynes, is, yes. We think of that as beautiful. One of the expressions that I used in the football grounds of England and Wales, actually, was the first one, that people came back to me often and they said, that's exactly how I feel, is that some of the stands were unlovely and yet lovable. Yes, I completely agree. Lovable. That was the
1: point I was going to make, Simon. Was that yes. Manchester City, you know, famously at Main Road, had four different stands built in four different eras by four different designs, none of them matched, ludicrous. But it was home. That is the point. We've moved to a stadium that is beautifully designed, very impressive. I know John has a, a lot of good things to say about it, but to me, it never has managed yet at least to acquire. The love that we gave to this ramshackle collection of stands we, that we call Main Road. And I'm sure that is widely replicated in other in other grounds yeah.
2: by other people. And what about that stand at Chelsea? That the was, shed. No, not the oh, shed. Oh no, the West Stand, the new the west the, the stand, the one that was stand set yeah. at an angle yeah. off the end, which appeared to have been transported from some other ground and just plonked there. Yeah. But they moved these stands. <laughs> Some club had a stand that came from Hurst Park Racecourse when it closed down. That was
0: Mansfield, yes. Was it Mansfield? Yes, I think it was. But there were other grounds that were moved. Wrexham's Copend had a stand, the framework of which had come from a cinema. And it had a curved balcony at the front.
2: Oh, lovely. Notts County got floated across
0: from the the cricket ground. That particular stand, I remember having an argument with the Notts County groundsman on the pitch (laughs) at... um, Meadow Lane. At Meadow Lane. But one of the problems I had when I started all this is that there were no histories, there was no record of any of this. And I found myself at Notts County having researched in the local newspapers when a particular stand was built, and the drowns were saying, No, it wasn't, no, it wasn't. And you couldn't find really anybody who'd put in any effort into researching this. Because of this podcast today, I've been looking back through my old copies of football grounds in England and Wales. And I'm quite embarrassed at the number of mistakes I made. I started with a complete blank sheet. There was no internet there. Everything had to be done by going to local newspapers. But the point is, the clubs themselves had no idea. They literally had no idea. The
1: industry lives like the cinema when the studios were at their height. They gave no thought whatsoever to these films might have a commercial life 30, 40, 50 years hence. Once they'd done their initial release and perhaps the second one, that was it. They were dead. They had no interest in them. So when you're researching, you know, my love is old Hollywood movies, I think Simon knows. So you go to the studios, they have absolutely no idea then what they had or what they didn't. They destroyed everything. It had no commercial value.
2: There's very little sense of heritage. Without the heritage, the club is nothing. Mm. That is a generally acknowledged now. Yes. to have a historian now, John Hutchinson, who digs up loads of stuff on where the grounds were previously, which none of the previous generation knew. Unfortunately now, the owners have been very good, but they, of course, have worked on the premise that the club did not exist before they mm-hmm. came in. Mm-hmm. They never won anything before they came in. It's probably true, but it's interesting how football has moved from having no real history Mm. to now having a history which the very existence of us talking now, the football equivalent of boom radio and talking pictures, we are now, (laughs) as talking about what went on in the past, of which a lot of people are completely unaware of. Norwich City had a ground called The Nest the whole idea of these three-sided grounds mm. where they had to go running off to fetch the ball mm. at Northampton and Sheffield United, and they couldn't play for a period because there was cricket on, Northampton yeah. Yeah. especially. Sheffield United. What, what was the nest yeah. late, like, Simon?
0: Well, sadly, I'd never went there because it ceased to exist in the 1930s. But I've looked at photographs, I've visited the site. It was extraordinary because one side of it was a sort of a cliff face in which fans were actually sort of lodged on precipices. Like Braga like Braga yeah. only much untidier and it, it, it is remarkable that no one was ever killed really or or if they were it wasn't recorded I mean this is another aspect that we can go into or, or not but so much of it was unrecorded we think of the big disasters that shaped football yeah. history Ibrox yeah. Bolton Hillsborough Bradford and so on but in between those were a whole series of minor accidents a broken ankle here a heart attack there on a very regular basis and again No records were really kept. Mm. So it's very difficult for us to know what caused them and how it came about. But there was a general assumption that in crowds there were going to be accidents. And this wasn't just football. This was in industry. This was on the railways. The
3: world in which football grew up was a dangerous world. I mean, I go to a match at Fulham. And if, if someone has a serious, perhaps a heart attack in the ground, the match is usually stopped. But... In the old days, if you found that someone had died at the match you'd just seen, it wasn't particularly unusual.
2: It wasn't even noted. I went to a game, Leicester versus West Brom. I think it was a cup game. The referee died at (laughs) half-time, and the game went on. They put out a request, is anybody a qualified linesman? One of the linesmen became the referee, and the game went on. Why was that? Oh, the referee died.
0: But, you know, you take a typical afternoon at Anfield in the 60s. I remember talking to the chap who became the stadium officer and he said on a routine afternoon, there would be 40 or 50 quite serious injuries on the cop. Routinely broken legs, broken ribs, bruising, people fainting, collapsing and that sort of thing. We can look back on the old days with certain rose-tinted spectacles, yeah. but there were a lot of other things there that we wouldn't be happy with. I mean, do you remember the, the obligatory little bench at every ground where the St John's Ambulance crew yes. Yes. Just, yes. sat yes. out? And you, you'd often see, I mean, I don't wish to ascribe anything to those volunteers, but some of them were rather portly, yeah. some of them were rather old. And in the case of an emergency, they were not really good enough to carry people out. The whole business of having defibrillators at grounds, which was what was revealed at Hillsborough. So there were many things. But at the same time, I've got in front of me an early edition of the Football Grounds of Great Britain. And this was in 1983. And what do I say? I say that one of the remarkable features of the history of British football grounds is how few tragic accidents Have been recorded. I've written less than fifty fatalities. It should be, of course, fewer. Fewer. Fifty fatalities. I was young. (laughs) Uh, Fewer. Fifty fatalities since 1945. Now that just shows the sort of the level of complacency, the lack of recording, but also at the same time, your podcast is predicated on the basis that everything changed in 1990, 1991 post hills were premier league yeah. and what i'm saying to you is that in 1983 having looked at the whole thing i thought things were going pretty well i thought with the football grounds improvement trust the 1975 safety of sports ground act that came in after ibrox there was a lot of things happening and yet so poor was the infrastructure around the country, so poor was the management levels within the boardrooms. You could still have Bradford and Hillsborough within seven, eight, ten years of the safety of sports grounds coming out. Do you
3: think that if the Premier League had never been created, in other words, if what we now think of as the Premier League was called the First Division, do you think that grounds would be more comfortable today than they are now, or less I'm not
0: sure that the formation of the Premier League had anything to do with other than the fact that it raised money. First Division, Second Division, no. Hillsborough, the Taylor Report. Here you are. I can call it up because I, of course, never far away from it, even though it's now a historical document. But he starts off by saying it is a depressing and chastening fact that mine is the ninth official report covering crowd safety at football grounds. So all those deaths that came before were despite eight previous reports. The Hillsborough disaster was really the last straw for football. Mm. I mean, we all remembered the Sunday Times talking at a slum game. We looked at Mrs Thatcher's attitude. Do you remember just shortly before the Bradford Fire, there was the riot with Millwall fans at Kenilworth Road. I was there. I I witnessed it. We mustn't forget that football was a dying industry in the Mm. mid-1980s. I mean, you just look at the attendances. The lowest season was, what, 1985-86. This is lowest post-war. About 16.5 million in total.
3: Yeah. Mm. You know, I was doing a bit of research about the Premier League. In the first year of the 1992-03 season, the highest attendance recorded that whole season was under 45,000. It was for a Merseyside derby. That was the first year of the Premier League. OK, the grounds were a lot smaller. But now, about half of the grounds have a capacity more than 45,000.
0: Just looking at the individual clubs for 1985-86, I mean, my club Villa, 15,000. Yeah. Tottenham, 20,000. West Ham, 21. Chelsea, 22,000. The
3: top, I'm sorry to say this, Colin, Manchester United, 46,000.
1: Yeah, comes as no surprise.
3: I remember when Nottingham Forest got to their first European Cup final against Malmö. Their attendance on the Saturday as they returned, heroes from Cologne, the semi-final. The crowd was 13,000 at the city. <laughs> but anyway, we digress. Have you got, apart from Villa Park, have you got a favourite ground? A ground that makes you smile when you go and see it?
0: I'm asked this question so often. In fact, I've just written the foreword to a new book, which is The History of Craven Cottage. And I do make the admission that probably I should say Park, but the truth is it probably is Craven Cottage. But that's partly because I live in London, because of my association with Archibald Leach. But actually, when I was growing up, the ground that I really loved visiting was Molyneux. Oh, because there you are, you yes. step out of the railway yeah. station, it's a short oh. walk, you're at the top of this hill with a bowling green yes. and the old Molyneux Hotel, especially, I know it's a cliche, floodlights, Molyneux, 1950s, 60s, yeah. but it had a magic because those massive floodlight pylons dominated the city at that time. And you stepped down, you went down the hill, the ground was built on the side of this hill, and you remember the multi-gabled roof on the Molyneux Street side yes, painted in that old ochre yes. yes. colour. This is what annoys me about Wolverhampton Wanderers at the moment. They're not playing in old gold. They look like Watford. They should oh. tamp down those colours to the old gold. But the cold ground was bathed in it and all the different angles. The South Bank was a fabulous terrace to watch football from. It really was. So I think being nestled into a city centre, again it's a cliche but it does hold true. Brentford, the example, with the four pubs on the corner. Those are the things that we remember a great deal.
1: When you were driving to an away match when you hadn't been there before, frequently, of course, and I'm talking about the 1980s again, 1990s, you were guided to the ground by the sight of the four floodlights. You could see standing tall above everything else, and that's what gave you the lock for the location. Now, of course, all the lights are now put on the top of the stands, so they don't have the same impact in terms of the surrounding landscape. I remember how proud Villa
0: fans were when the stadium manager changed the lights on the pylon so that they read A.V. Yeah. It <laughs> seemed so modern.
2: It's true of Burnley. If you went across from Leeds, as I did while I was at university, to watch Burnley, you came down from the hills, you could spot the ground yes, through the floodlights. correct. Do you remember Allen Road, the
0: diamond-shaped floodlight yeah. pylons, which were dominant across the skyline? It's true to say that we think of old grounds in terms of variety yeah. because of their quirks, and of course, it doesn't need me to say this, but you know, the modern grounds are more identical. They are tin sheds to a large extent. They do lack character. Having said that, there is a new generation of architects. The transformational change of the last twenty years has been that football clubs are now employing architects properly, because they have to, in order to comply with regulations. And secondly, that town planners are taking into account of how the ground fits within its environment. Up to about the mid-70s, I'd say, mid-80s, local authorities mostly saw football clubs as a nuisance. Mm -hmm. They were not interested in them. They didn't want to help them. They saw them almost as the enemy in some respects. So what has changed is modern stadium architecture is now, this may seem awful to all my followers out there, but I think modern football architecture is far superior now.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think there's no question. that The architecture is certainly... But can I turn to one particular club, because I think it tells its own story, and that's Everton. Mm-hmm. Goodison Park, classic old ground. Do you ever remember it for the 1966 World Cup with those indents behind the goal? Very distinctive. It's like looking at the cow shed at Molyneux that you knew where you were instantly. So many times now you look at a match on television, you have no idea where you are. Yeah. But there were things about the old grounds that made them distinctive. But Goodison and Everton, generally as a club, have suffered from the inability to solve the ground problem. And they still haven't yet solved it. I think they are trying to get Well, they have. Room. No,
0: this new stadium but, is nearly built. It's nearly but complete. But the point
1: was they were so reluctant for so long to leave what was their home. Which was Goodison Park, because maybe something was going to be lost when they left Goodison Park.
0: Well, yes, accepting that they then this goes right throughout the football league. I mean, Luton Town is, is another example. They've wanted to move for years, and they couldn't get planning permission on sites elsewhere. In that, it's only recently that Fulham have broken that sort of, I'd say, 80-, 90 year deadlock, because modern planners are seeing stadiums as now an asset rather than as a disadvantage. Everton were stymied in all their attempts to build out, to build up, and finally they had to move out to the Docklands. Having said that, the new Everton Stadium, I think, is going to be sensational. I yes. really do.
2: So that's apologies to all our listeners who listen to this because football was better before the Premier League. <laughs> Simon has just said, you're talking rubbish.
3: Yes, but we're not Luddite, with the possible exception of Colin. Well, somebody has to be the out here. <laughs> I think there is a part of Colin that lives in the here and now. But the stadiums, <laughs> Simon, I'm so thrilled to hear him say that Everton's new Dockside Stadium will be infinitely better than Goodison because I'm the only person in the world who thinks Goodison is. It's neither one thing nor the other. It's not a proper old ground. And it's definitely not a new ground because it's not pretty. Whereas the new one will be. And that's wonderful because that continues a trend begun by Tottenham Hotspur. They had one of the best old grounds, the ground with the shelf, apart from the Kippak's best sideways view of football that there was, Kipacts at Man City. Now, Tottenham pulled down that stadium and built, in my opinion, the best stadium in the world. And one which genuflects architecturally, and Simon may disagree, that genuflects architecturally to the shelf. Interesting. Interesting theory there. (laughs) Well, the operatic side stands on the second tier, I Mm. think, are reminiscent of the shelf. I'm struggling with that, Patrick, but next time I go to Tottenham, I will revisit that thought. Well, if I can make the Pevner of the Leathern Sphere think again, (laughs) I shall consider it one of my career's apexes. I also think, actually, while we're talking about you, Simon, we're talking about the greater understanding of tradition in the rebuilding of football grounds. I I certainly think we have plumbed the depths, and we are now rising for the first time ever into building proper football stadiums. I think that Simon and the wave he caught with that book, which I know I can sense his eyes rolling, oh, bloody hell, I've written more than that. You know, why? Well,
1: exactly. But
3: that book did give a home to people like us who wanted this era to take place and so I think he has to take a bit of credit.
0: I was very lucky I was incredibly lucky I'd studied history of architecture at university I was a young freelance I was living about 400, 600 yards from Main Road. I mean, I could walk to the Kipax. Mm. When I started my career in Manchester, I walked into the offices of the Manchester Guardian and said, I'd like to be a football reporter. Mm. And there was Patrick Barclay and yes, the lovely John Roberts. And they said, OK, well, we'll give you a go. So, Patrick, you had a part <laughs> to play. In that. It's your fault.
3: Although I confess that when Simon said, yeah, I'm going to do this work, it's going to take me about 36 hours a day eight days a week for the next two years, logging every aspect of Football Ground's history. i I certainly thought to myself, good luck with that, mate.
2: What also comes back to you when you do this research about the heritage of football clubs? There are pictures of people hanging from wires, (laughs) watching games, which there are some pictures from Leicester. One of their fans' websites now is called the Bentley's Roof, If you remember, there was a low stand. It was called the popular side. It was a chicken run type of stand. And there were houses backing onto where the ball regularly went into one of the gardens, had to be thrown back not like Gay Meadow where the ball went in the water and they had to employ some bloke in a a coracle, coracle. that's right, to come fetch the ball. Was that on Burnmore Street? It was indeed on Burnmore Street. And
0: and some of the entrances, from memory, there were houses Through the the houses. You went through the alleyway, as at Kenilworth Road today.
2: The directors couldn't manage to buy the houses. They wanted to develop that side, but they couldn't because, you know, people resolutely said, no, I've lived here for whatever it is, years, and wouldn't move. Cities and towns have only just realised, have they not, the effect that football can have on the economy, the whole way Mm -hmm. a town looks at itself and is viewed. Some of that, of course, has come from Europe. The name gets known in Europe. You know, Nottingham, where I lived at the time, They won the European. Before that, Nottingham was only known for Robin Hood. Yes, And then suddenly you went in Europe and people said, oh, yes, that's where it is. Leicester was known as Leicester in most places around the world until they won the, you know, the 5,000 to 1 win.
0: Which had a galvanising effect on the local universities. The number of foreign students wanting to study in Leicester after your premiership
1: shot up.
2: I'm probably one of the only people who completed his UCCA form, that it complied with the First Division table.
1: (laughs) Yes, you are, John, yes.
0: (laughs) It read
2: Leeds-Liverpool, Newcastle-Southampton, or something like that. And I can remember going to a fundraising dinner for the university, and they said, well, why did you choose Leeds? I said, I chose it from the First Division table.
3: First instance of league tables in education. (laughs) You mentioned Newcastle a couple of seconds ago. And it would be crazy if we're talking about the galvanic effect of a football ground on a city, not to talk of Newcastle. And Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously Newcastle is a semi modern ground, but it's the way in which the jewel is set on that slightly elevated position, walking distance from the railway station the city. Walking side. up the
2: hill. And so it
3: looms large yeah. and majestic in front of you. That must be one of your favourite sights.
0: It is. And it's a wonderful ground as well. Again, it's where the quirkiness of it is its majesty, really. The, the eccentricity of the English ground. If you contrast, say, for example, the 1966 World Cup, you look at the venues, that the eight venues that were used there. And then you go forward four years to Mexico, to Guadalajara and the Azteca. Yeah. We lived in a totally different world. And a lot of that was simply the result that we developed earlier and therefore our football clubs, they were more settled Mm -hmm. by the First World War. Most of the clubs were at grounds that they were going to stay at for the next 80 years or so. But at the same time, because we have this lack of any sort of governmental or municipal involvement in football, most football grounds, large stadiums on the continent, they're being built With the involvement of a local authority, with state money, often funded through taxation, football clubs in Britain, as indeed the majority of sports clubs in Britain, they get no help and there's no inspiration. The total amount of money given to football clubs to get them to be ready to host the World Cup in 1966 Mm. was the equivalent today of about seven million pounds for the whole tournament.
1: Well now speaking as General Secretary (laughs) of the Luddite Party (laughs) I wish to produce the following observation for for Simon. Of course we all understand (laughs) Better to have lavatories that work than a a brick wall that it now replaced. But there is the naming question of the new grounds, which still causes me some anxiety. And one of the reasons why I'm dubious about the Etihad, it doesn't have a comforting sound of Main Road, but so many grounds have now got the name of the sponsors. They've sold the rights to the ground because they need the money. And it's now just an advertising slogan, and I can't bear it. My brother will keep talking, because my brother is on the committee at Lancashire County Cricket Club. The language you can have played at Old Trafford. It's the one Old Trafford that I've always liked yeah. for all my life, for obvious reasons. And he now refers to it constantly as Emirates Old Trafford, which <laughs> drives me round right the bend. So this is my question to Simon. Was it absolutely inevitable? Was there no other way that when you build a new ground, you need the money, you sell the naming rights? Well, again, I take you back
0: to the old days, pre-Premier League, and we all remember... How Wolves nearly went out of business when they built a new stand. Chelsea nearly went out of business when they built a new stand. Sheffield United. There was a whole catalogue of clubs that built a new stand and for the next 10 years they were struggling.
2: Leicester City built a new ground and got a dodgy chairman. Yours truly.
0: But clubs have to, obviously, the ground is now an asset, whereas before it has been a place that was used Uh, once a fortnight for matches. They're now 24-hour places where you have conferences, weddings, all sorts of things are going on throughout the week. But at the same time, the rise in players' wages has had an extraordinary effect. When I was researching the history of Villa Park, and I think this is typical for most clubs, up to about, I'm going to say, the 1960s, the typical wage bill of a club represented about 40% of its income, which therefore gave them 60% to run the club and to make improvements. And they still didn't do it mm. at that point. When they had excess cash in the 1940s, after the post-war boom, they didn't use that money to invest there were a number of reasons why they didn't. One was the post-war restrictions. The British economy was very badly hit and didn't really start to recover till the mid-60s. We have to remember that. And at the same time, the idea that you should go to eat in a restaurant at a football club during the week was completely <laughs> anathema. The idea of a stadium tour the idea of a club shop. At Villa Park, the club shop, if I remember rightly, was a door underneath the main stairway, which if you didn't know it was there, you would walk past it. And even when you did go in, it was a tiny little thing. And what was it? A few key rings and a biro or something. You couldn't buy a shirt. You couldn't buy anything like that. So the grounds themselves didn't have to do much beyond stage football. And once you start to improve... You have to obviously utilise every single bit of income that you can extract.
2: We reached the state at Leicester when the ties came in, who've actually proved to be very good owners. At one stage, they put out an announcement during the game saying, the club shop remains open during the game. (laughs) I used to be incensed by this. Honestly, what the... Do you think people are coming for, to buy a blue bloody teddy? For
1: God's sake. The Manchester City shop in the good old days, I'm talking about 96, 97, when the only player that anybody cared about was a Georgian called King Clancy. And if you went in to buy a shirt with the name King Clancy on, the bloke behind the counter said, I'm really sorry, love, but we've run out of Ks and Zs. (laughs) And that was the way in which the, the shop was run, which is of course, nothing like today. But if you go into that shop today before the game, it's a horrible experience. It's just enormous. It's soulless. You can't wait to get outside. When yeah. you get outside, you get drowned out by the noise from the horrible tunnel. Yeah. When you try to get into the stadium, you have to use a phone, and you know, I can't find it on the phone to put it under the scanner thing. It was a horrible. I thought you the didn't go. Went, it was a horrible experience. I went to see them play Watford when they won 5-1 last year. I had a wonderful day in Manchester, which I love. I saw all my relatives. I took my grandson to the ground for the first time. That was all positive. The trains worked. We left eight in the morning, got back at eight at night. It was a lovely day, except for the experience at the ground, which was unpleasant. Mm. And that's the truth. That's how
3: I felt.
0: But you talk about taking your grandchildren. Let's go back to the time when we were young, And what were the influences, what were the experiences that we had compared with youth of today? So when a youth of today goes to a football match... The things that you find appalling and that I find difficult to cope with are cool Mm. to the kids of today. They are cool. I remember giving a lecture to some young students, actually at De Montfort in in Leicester, and talking about how I despised the pitch side moving adverts as the thing goes around. It's such a distraction. I can't believe that the players themselves don't complain about it Mm. because it surely must affect their vision. But all the kids that I was speaking to, I say kids, they were all in their early 20s, they loved it because it was cool and because it replicated their experience on computers, on Playstations, and that It also
2: goes back, Simon, the record-keeping. My father inherited from his father three seats and two rows in front of us was my other grandfather. These seats had reportedly been in the family forever and ever. So I asked the secretary, I said... How long has my family had these seats? No idea. We don't keep records. Mm. I mean, talk about that for marketing. Mm. No idea. No computer. You know, now they would absolutely have when you joined the club. But there was no interest in going back, no interest in the heritage, the history. It was just now.
0: But again, that comes back to the fact that, you know, you talk in terms of the Premier League as being a benchmark, a a time when everything changes. But actually, it coincides with computerisation. And the computerisation, the management of stadiums today depends entirely on a very sophisticated network of digital communications. Your season ticket, your entry point, how many hot dogs they're selling at a certain point at a certain time of the day or whatever. The very fact that people are consuming food in large quantities at football grounds brings up All sorts of benefits, but all sorts of issues as well. So if you think of your experience, your interaction with the club, when we were children, when we were going to grounds, when we were young, you bought a programme, you stood on the terrace, and that was it. Now, of course, it's 24 hours on your apps, who's signing who, traffic conditions on the way to the stadium and so on. That transforms everything. But I go back to the point that youth of today, they've been to Disneyland. They've been to McDonald's, and therefore the football ground has to meet it if they're going to be encouraged to go back again.
1: You're making the point about America, and I think a lot of what Simon's describing, I have experienced in the 80s going to baseball. Yes, Baseball's exactly that. It astonished me that people were constantly... Talk about the club shop being open during the game. People never sat down. If you looked at all four sides, people were streaming up and down the steps looking for food and coming back with hot dogs and whatever. That was the American experience. And the experience was, it was family-friendly. You could sit down. There was no standing, obviously. You came when you want. You left when you want. It was three hours long. You knew what you were doing. You could park in the big car park outside. It was absolutely the experience that now transmits itself to places like the Reebok, as as was. I don't know, Burnham Park's changed again.
0: I think it's the University of Bolton Stadium. Yes,
1: Oh, that's fine. Why aren't they teaching students about Gladstone and Israeli? (laughs) What are they doing putting money into, into that for?
0: I think they were the only bidders around at the time when the previous sponsors went out of business. I'm
2: not sure. And yet we still get, if young kids are taken to a football match, what really engages them is the noise of the crowd. Yes. When I got taken over by some Americans, the boss was very keen. He was very engaged with the fact that soccer, as he saw it, was the future. I took him to a match and he could not believe, first of all, how close the play was and how much the crowd engaged with the sport, which was not the case in American sport, any of it. NFL, the lot. The only bit, he said to me, that came close was college football. Mm. There is a level of engagement, isn't there? That's why a lot of supporters who are just television supporters, they change clubs. They move around. They don't support clubs from their hometown. It's a different experience. This is why in your area, people wander around with all sorts of different strips on. Happily, not as many Man United as there used to be now, but anyway to take it back to
0: that transformation time with the American influence that Colin talked about, I'm sure each club had their own person at Aston Villa. It was a chap called Eric Woodward, their first commercial manager appointed by Doug Ellis, and he'd been to America. He came back with these ideas and suddenly things started to change. Jimmy Hill was very influenced. Correct. The sky blue revolution at Coventry City, which, you know, as a Villa fan, I was a little bit dismissive of. But you have to credit Jimmy Hill, even though he and I fell out big time later on. And he bad mouthed me in his autobiography, which is one of my proudest achievements (laughs) at the time. I mean, there were characters within the game during the 60s, Derek Dugan. Again, a torchbearer for modernisation. There were those characters around who saw the way the future was going. And even you know the likes of Charlie Buchan, writing in the 50s, would talk about the future is floodlights, all-seater stadiums, covered stadiums. People knew
2: where it was going. There was massive resistance. I can remember going to Coventry, the Highfield Road as it was then. And everything was sky blue, you're right. Mm. To the extent that I said to someone going you know, you're expected to go and get a sky blue pie. Mm. I think people forget about Jimmy Hill. What did he do for football? Crikey, a, a, a he lot. came up with the three points, didn't he? He did do an enormous amount in that respect. And some of his changes were profound and made the game better. I totally agree, yeah. But the grounds now are much better. The experience of watching football, is much, much better.
1: Yes, I I don't think I would disagree with that, John. Of course, they're clearly better, but in a certain limited way, is my point. They are better architecturally. They are better in terms of the facilities available to everybody who is there. But the fear is that the direction of travel of this improvement in inverted commas is we're heading towards an American version of our game, a global version of our game, not just American. And I am speaking on behalf of the Loddite Party. I'm a localist and I'm not a globalist and I have a very different view of these things. So we can assume that football grounds are better in the obvious architectural nature of grounds. But Simon, in your opinion, having researched it so deeply and having lived your life through these changes that we're talking about, are the grounds better now? Have they lost something intangible that's the result of their improvements in architectural terms,
0: I could answer that question both yes and no, and believe my own answers. It depends if I'm in a room a pub full of football fans. I can
2: easily. You're not a it. barrister, and we're not paying you. <laughs> we want an honest and opinion. you don't
1: have to be impartial or balanced.
2: And you're not paying me anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs>
0: But no, unquestionably, the football stadiums are far superior to what they were before. And it's easy for us as males to say that. But for women, football grounds were appalling. It in my is. early days, I can remember going to one ground. I think it was Exeter, whereby a woman standing at one end of the ground in order to get to the nearest toilet had to walk round the whole outside of the ground get to a toilet at the other for disabled people there is no question whatsoever the things are, are far superior for the players they're better you look at the standard of the pitches that people are playing on you know wouldn't danny blanchflower and jimmy Creese and these people just love yes. playing on the pitches? yes yes, today? yes agreed, absolutely. they really would but at the same time i'm with colin about the business of localism but you know what we're talking about here is a hugely successful industry It's all very well for us to carp, But even since the end of COVID restrictions, football attendances have shot up. They're at the highest now since they were in the 40s. So we may not like what's happening, but there are a lot of other people out there who do like what's happening. And I I always draw the analogy with the Roman Colosseum, you know, that if if you'd have stood in the middle of Rome in, let's say, 200 AD and said to the Romans, you see this Colosseum here, 55,000 capacity, watching gladiators all this is going to be gone in 200 years this will be a ruin there'll be no more gladiators football could easily go down the same yeah. the men's game yeah. may succumb to the popularity of the women's game mm. there may be manchester united playing against beijing united or whatever in a, a global league this is because the product that we love the game that we love that we grew up on is so damn successful Think of the poor guys who are working in rugby league who are now searching for somewhere to hold their next World Cup yeah. because the French have dropped out. Yeah. You think of the struggle that cricket is having with formats and trying to get crowds in. And yeah. yet, what does football do? It continues. 90 minutes, 11 aside, side yeah. and are packing them in across <laughs> the world. Just
2: a little addendum to that. Cricket's not struggling now. It's found its new format in many ways. Yes, it's had a struggle. Horse racing, on the other hand, is struggling very badly. I actually said to someone the other day, in 50 years' time, and as short as that, it's perfectly possible that someone will say, you know what, they used to race horses, Mm -hmm. and people used to go and watch them. Because now, betting is the only thing that's sustaining that sport. The attendances are dropping. I live in a place called Southall, There is a race course. It holds more race meetings than anywhere else in the country. But a majority of these are under floodlights and virtually no-one's there. It's held just for betting. Greyhound racing is the same. The great thing about football is there is still an integrity in the game. It stayed true to itself. That is why it is the biggest game in the world and why it is the most successful. Yeah. And I think um, for all
3: we said before about you know, the stadium announcer saying that the match will be open, I can't remember the last time I went to a Premier League football match where the entire crowd were not agog for the whole 90 plus minutes of the game correct. and completely focused on it. And I think what sums up the defeat, Colin, of bloodism in terms of Premier League football as we now know it is the common saying that you often hear? I tried to get a ticket for a match, but the grounds were always full. Well, the grounds weren't full of dummies or cardboard cutouts, they were full of people enjoying football matches. So, in a way, what's not to like?
1: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And, and I do offer the observation that in 33 AD, when they were filling the Colosseum <laughs> for the gladiator matches. There was probably all seater stadiums, weren't they? They were all sitting down Yeah,
0: they, they, they were all seated. Can, can I just correct you there that it wasn't open in thirty-three AD until well, about fifty-five. It was one AD.
3: of these new grounds. It was a, it was. It was actually it was. it was actually sponsored by a firm of stonemasons called <laughs> Lucillus. It was called the Lucillus Stadium. Also known as the Colosseum. I was actually thinking of the life of Brian, which is actually set in 33 AD. (laughs) But Simon, was there ever a better stadium than the Colosseum in Rome? Oh,
0: my goodness, that's a difficult question. It's much better than the Olympic stage. I Olympica, went there yes, well, last it's year. It's dreadful. My favourite classical reference is we use the word arena mm. all the time. Yes, yes. Arena is the Latin word for sand, yeah. the sand that coated the ground of the Colosseum because it was absorbing all the blood. Mm. So even in our use of terms, the word arena ah, goes back to So two, we've actually learned
3: something. Football ruined my life has actually donated something to prosperity. Thank you. Well, we haven't got the
1: classical reference and the Life of Brian reference. I do see myself very much as the popular front of Judea, which is the one bloke sitting eating a lot of peanuts by himself at the top of the stadium with no friends. No, not really. I've got plenty of friends. And a lot of them are on this programme. And a lot of the pleasure of this particular podcast has been the company of Simon Inglis. Thank you. We thank him enormously for his insights and for his learned commentary. Thank you, as ever, to John and thank you to Paddy. And particular thanks, because I missed him out last time, to our indefatigable producer, Paul Cobrak. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you wish to get in touch and tell us how terrible we are, we can be found at an email address, which is footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We read everything And we do incorporate your thoughts into the podcast. So please keep writing and keep telling people about us. Thanks to everybody. See you next time.
3: Simon, that's another three hours of your life you'll never get back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's actually been very timely because I'm just about to start cataloguing and archiving all my football ground photographs, which are going to the National Archives at Historic England in Swindon. All those pictures that I took of toilets and floodlights... And windows and terraces. I'm going to be putting them in this aircraft hangar somewhere near Swindon railway station where they will be preserved for all time.
3: Sport Social Podcast Network.